You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we come to you this morning at this time because our desire is that we might understand your word. You have given us a clear vision of who you are, a clear revelation of the type of God that you are and what you are capable of doing. We ask, God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts now that we may behold in your word truth concerning you and your plan, your purposes, in order that we might worship you as you have revealed yourself to us. If we worship you wrongly, it is idolatry, and we want to worship you as you have made yourself known to us. We ask now that you would come here and by your spirit minister to us through your word. I pray that this would be as clear as I am hoping to make it and that you might do the work of equipping us and edifying us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have finished the book of Acts as far as the miracles in the book of Acts go. We have looked at the last recorded miracle in the New Testament, the last recorded miracle in the early church. Uh, in Scripture. And so now today we're going to do something a little bit different. This is not our standard fare for what we would do on a Sunday morning. We're going to step back a little bit. We're going to kind of catch a bird's eye view of the subject of miracles. And the reason we're doing it in this order is rather than begin the book of Acts and tell you what miracles are and tell you what the purpose of them is, and then look at all the miracles in their context, we have done the opposite. We have looked at all of the miracles and everything that the book of Acts says about miracles in its context, each and every individual one, and now having studied all of them in their context, we're going to go back and we're going to sort of step back and take a bird's eye view of the subject of miracles in its entirety. Now, I asked you a couple weeks ago if you if there was anybody here who had questions about miracles that you were hoping would be answered in these next couple weeks, that you would write those down and give them to me on a piece of paper. And I had three people submit questions to me, all of them women from in our congregation, all of them good questions. Now, what that tells me is the men think that they know everything about this subject. So let me give you an idea of what, um, because some some man's going to come up to me after the service today and say, well, you didn't answer my question about such and such and so and so, and I had a question about this, and I'm going to say quite politely, shut your pie hole. You had your opportunity to ask your question. I'm going to say that in the love of Jesus, so just so you understand, you had your chance. Let me give you an idea of some of the questions that were asked and what we're going to be dealing with this week and next week. Why don't we see the parting of the Red Sea type miracles today like they did in Bible days? Does God continue to do miracles today through miracle workers? Does God continue to do miracles today without miracle workers or without human agency? And if so, under what circumstances should we ask for them? How do we distinguish miracles of God from manifestations of the occult? And are there supernatural miracles that, sat- that have satanic origin? Did Jesus, did miracles end with Jesus and the apostles? And if so, should we constrain our prayers to only things that can be answered in non-miraculous ways? If miracles are to authenticate the ministry of the apostles as they took the gospel to new areas for the first time, would it not be biblical to expect that God may do the same thing as the gospel goes to new places today? How is answered prayer in specific, unique, and sometimes breathtaking ways different from a miracle? Do I have to write off dramatic answers to prayer in my own life as circumstantial? Do I have to believe that God will act and answer prayer in only non-dramatic or non-miraculous ways that can be explained through natural means? Another one, should we restrict our prayers to things that can be answered without a miracle? And why are we instructed to lay hands on the sick? Is it for healing? And is this not a miracle? Or if it... Or is it only a miracle if they wouldn't have gotten well on their own anyway? And if they would have gotten well anyway, then why pray? Is healing a miracle? And the last one, nobody asked this, but I threw this in because it's relevant and I'm planning on answering it in the next couple weeks. How are exorcisms related to miracles? Now, even if you didn't submit any questions on a piece of paper to me in the last couple weeks, my guess is that most of you here heard some of your questions listed off just as I read those. Most of you heard some questions that you have just read back to you, and I'm hoping so, at least. Um, 
If any of you have ever wished that you could preach or teach or do what I do, stand up here and, and do this type of stuff, that list of questions there probably just deterred you from ever wanting to have to do that. There's not a single person in this room today that wants to be me right now, is there? Except for me, because I'll be honest with you, I sat down on Monday morning and I read through the list of questions. I get this flutter in my stomach and my heart started to beat and I got excited and you know somebody's not firing on all six cylinders when something like that, they get excited about that. I get excited about it because I have the opportunity to take something. <laughs> Jess is laughing because he does the same thing. Um, I get excited about it because I have the opportunity to take something that can be very confusing and now I have to try and make it very clear. And that's what I'm endeavoring to do. I'm I want you to know at the outset that I, in discussing the subject of miracles, I'm going to attempt to say things in such a way that the six, seven, eight, and nine-year-old kids and ten-year-old kids in the audience can understand what I'm saying. And I'm going to test myself because I'm going to be asking my own kids when we get home today. They should be able to understand it, but at the same time, I want to answer the questions that the adults have, some of these tough questions. Um, so my prayer has been that everything would be clear. Let me give you a little bit about what the uh, pattern or the, the, the method of, of answering these questions is going to be this week, today, and next Lord's Day, next Sunday. Today what we're going to do, it's going to be a little bit longer today than normal. Um, normally I try and preach around 35 to 40 minutes, and I try and keep it at that. That's not because I think that there's some magic number in 40 or anything like that. It just fits well on one side of the tape. And so I try and, uh, no, it's just because that's not just typically how it ends up being. Today's going to be a little bit longer. I'm going to warn you about that at the outset. You say, how much longer? When are we going to be done? You're going to be done when I'm done talking, and I'll close in prayer, and then you'll know that we're done. We're going to get through all of this today, and I want to do this in two messages instead of three messages, and there's really no way of dividing up what I have to say to you today. So what we're going to do today is we're going to, we're going to just construct in our minds and in our thinking and in our approach to Scripture what Scripture says about miracles. We're going to try and build a biblical framework, a biblical way of looking at these questions, these issues, and understanding these things. And once we begin to lay a foundation and put some principles in place, then you will see that the questions begin to answer themselves. So before we're done today, I'm going to give you all the tools that you need to answer those questions. Next week, we're going to come back, and Lord willing, we're going to take those questions and we're going to apply the biblical way of thinking to answering those questions and probably some more that you're going to have by the time we get done today. Okay? So before we begin, I want to make a couple of general statements, a couple of general observations about miracles, and then we're going to get into the book of Acts. We're going to do an exposition of the entire book of Acts on the subject of miracles, and then we're going to look at 2 Corinthians and go all the way through the book of Hebrews. Say, oh, should have packed a lunch. Yeah, you should have packed a lunch. I want, let's, let's lay me, let me lay a foundation before we begin. This is it. This book that you hold in your lap, contains everything you need to know about the subject of miracles. This book that you hold in your lap contains everything you need to know about the subject of miracles, what the purpose of miracles were, who did the miracles, why the miracles were done, and how the miracles were done. This is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. You don't need anything outside of this book. You don't need to read a book by Benny Hinn. You don't need to read a book by anybody else to understand the subject of miracles. Everything you need is right here in the revealed pages of Scripture. Now, it may kind of blow your mind as to what you're going to find out. It may surprise you some things that you never saw or never thought were true before, and that's okay. But as long as we're faithful to the text of Scripture and our observations are coming from that, we're in good stead. Second, uh, second sort of prep, preparatory comment is this. My experience must bow the knee to Scripture, and yours must too. You understand that? If this is sufficient for life and godliness, then anything I experience, anything I think, and any approach that I take must bow the knee to Scripture, not the other way around. Martin Luther once said, if I can't find my experiences back in the Bible, then I know they're not from the Lord, but from the devil. Now, I wouldn't go that far because it is possible that my experiences might be generated by my own flesh. I might be deceived by somebody. It could be psychosomatic. There are a lot of causes for experiences that we don't find in Scripture. But Martin Luther was right in his essence of that, in his sentiment, which is that my experiences do not determine what Scripture says. And all of us run the danger of approaching Scripture and we read it, and we read it through the lens of our own experiences. And we try and take Scripture and force it into our own experiential mode rather than taking our experiences and forcing them into the mode of Scripture and saying, I will let Scripture judge my experiences and not the other way around. People come up to me sometimes in a hostile tone and say, well, what about such and such? And I have so-and-so happen to me. And, this, and they tell me a story and they say, what do you make of that? What does that mean? And my response is always the same. I can't exegete your experience. I don't have any tools 
to interpret your experience. I don't know what your experience means. The only thing I can exegete, the only thing I can interpret is Scripture. I know how to do that. What your experience means, I don't know. But let's look at what Scripture says, and then if we can't fit your experience into that, let's try and look at what Scripture says might be the cause of your experience. So that's what we're going to do. This book contains everything we need for life and godliness. And my experience must bow the knee to the authority of Scripture, and so must yours. Always, yours must bow the knee to the authority of Scripture as well. Let's begin with a definition of what miracles are, shall we? In the Old Testament, there are four different words that are used to describe a miracle, talk about miracles. Two of those words are translated as wonder in your Old Testament. One of the words is translated as sign, and one of them is translated as might. Sign, wonder, and might, or strength, or power in the Old Testament. Let me give you a sampling of some of the verses so you get a flavor of it. Exodus 7, verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 4.34, Or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Deuteronomy 6.22, Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. What, is, what are those passages referring to? The plagues and the miracles that God did through Moses in Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. And Moses used words like signs, wonders, power, strength, and might, and these mighty acts to describe that. In the New Testament, there are likewise four words that are used to describe or to define a miracle. The first is teros. Oh, where did that come from? The first is teros. Teros is translated wonder. And it kind of describes that sense of awe or wonder that somebody would have when you watched a miracle. You, you watch Jesus work the wonder of raising Lazarus from the dead, and you, cool, you're filled with awe and wonder. That's why the word teros is used. It kind of fills us with wonder. It describes not only the miracle itself, but also the effect of the miracle upon those who saw it. They're filled with wonder. Another word is dunamis, which is the word for power. It's translated miracle sometimes in the New Testament. Another word is ergon, and it means work. Jesus said, the works that I do bear witness of me. They testify of me. If you're not going to believe me, at least believe on the account of the works that I do. And he's pointing to the miracles. The works that I do, these demonstrate that I am who I say I am. That's the word that's used. And then the last one is simeon, which is the word translated sign. And the significant thing about a sign is that a sign doesn't just point to itself, does it? A sign points to something else. A sign points to, indicates, directs somebody to somebody else. That's what a sign or a miracle did in the New Testament as well. A sign or a wonder that was done or a mighty work or a power was intended to point to something. That's why they're translated signs in the New Testament. They're intended to point to something. So the question is, what were they intended to point to? Let me give you some illustrations or verses in which in the New Testament where these words occur. Romans 15:19 among the Gentile uh, Paul describes his ministry among the Gentiles as being in signs and wonders. John 4:48 Jesus said unless you people see signs and wonders you simply will not believe. Now there are bad signs and wonders too by the way. This this helps to answer some of the questions that we had. Uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 describes the coming of the lawless one whom we call the antichrist as being with all lying signs and wonders to deceive those who are perishing. There are false signs and wonders. There are lying signs and wonders. There are deceptive signs and wonders that Paul talks about. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, let me give you two, two definitions of a miracle. I'm going to give you a technical one, kind of a theological one from A.H. Strong Systematic Theology. Listen to this. I won't repeat it because it's kind of longer, but I'm going to boil it down and I'm going to give you a smaller definition following. Here's the longer definition. A miracle is an event in nature so extraordinary in itself and so coinciding with the prophecy or command of a religious teacher or leader as fully to warrant the conviction on the part of those who witness it that God has wrought it with the design to certifying that this teacher or leader has been commissioned by Him. Let me boil that down for you. A miracle is an extraordinary event wrought by God through human agency which cannot be explained by natural means. The purpose of which is to certify or authenticate the human agent. A miracle is a supernatural event wrought by God through a human agent for the purpose of authenticating that man or that messenger. And it is an event which cannot be 
explained away in natural terms. Now, why do I begin with all the technical stuff? Why do you begin with definitions and all these verses? Because I want you to understand how you should be using the term miracle. Let me, let me tell you about something that just chaffs me. This gets me, this rubs me raw every time this happens. When Christians use the word miracle in the wrong way, we throw the term around. You notice that? Christians throw the term miracle around and we apply it to things that doesn't describe at all. We use the term miracle real loosely to describe things which probably are better defined or called providence. A miracle is a supernatural event which cannot be explained in natural means. Providence is God supernaturally ruling in natural events to accomplish His purpose and His plan. Let me just describe to you the difference and give, illustrate the difference between a miracle and providence because I don't want you to use the term miracle wrongly. Let me give you a personal illustration. When I was in Bible college, I was poor. Now, now there's two types of poor. There's poor and then there's college poor. I was college poor. Not everybody in college is college poor. Some people are college rich. College rich is when you have money that mommy and daddy send to you and you never want for anything. <laughs> I only dreamt of those days. I was college poor when I was in Bible college. I used to take my laundry and I would wash my laundry in a five-gallon bucket in the shower. And I would, uh, I would put memory verses up on the wall and it's, this was the agitator, my fist in the bucket like that. And I washed my laundry, rinsed them off in the shower, wrung them out and hung them up all over my room because I couldn't afford a dollar, 50 cents for the wash, 50 cents for the dry. I was college poor. And I woke up one morning and I opened up my closet and I pulled the last pair of clean underwear off the shelf. I looked down at the pile of laundry in the bottom of my closet and I prayed audibly, Lord, if I'm going to have clean underwear tomorrow, I need money today. Now, in my mind, I was thinking if the Lord doesn't come through and provide, then I'm just got, got another evening in the shower. And all the guys in the dorm coming in and watching and thinking, oh, that's cool, doing your laundry in the shower. So after classes that day, and by the way, if you're a college student, uh, dirty underwear is not always a problem. Sometimes that's just a way of life for you. But I was a college student who was hoping to find a wife. And if, you're, if that's what you're trying to do, then stinking is not a good thing. Because you don't want to smell somewhere between gym socks and a porta potty which is what you would smell like if you just wore, recycled your underwear. So I needed clean underwear because this was important to me. So... <laughs> After class that day, after lunch, I went to my mailbox, and in my mailbox in the student lounge was a little care package that this church had sent back to me while I was in Bible college, because I attended this church when I was a kid in high school. People had taken up a collection. It was just small bills and coins and, and silver dollars and things like that that they had shipped off, about $40 worth. That was in my, that was, that was, I prayed that morning. And the minute I pulled that off and opened it up and looked inside, I could tell what was in it because I jingled it. It was changed. And that prayer came to my mind. Was that a miracle? Is that a miracle? Friends, there's, no, there's nothing miraculous there. There's nothing miraculous there. Paul was under arrest in Jerusalem. A man, 40 men decided they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Well, one conspirator happened to be talking to another conspirator, and Paul's nephew just happened to overhear it, and Paul's nephew went and told Paul. Paul said, you need to go tell Lysias, the commander of the Roman forces in Jerusalem. The nephew went and told Lysias. Lysias just happened to believe it. He ushered Paul out of Jerusalem under cover of night and to, and to avoid any kind of an assassination attempt, and Paul's life was spared. Is that a miracle? Nothing miraculous about it. Let's say that you are the head of a large ministry, and you want to start some sort of a project, some sort of a ministry project, and you need X amount of dollars. And so as a board of directors, you get together, and you pray for X amount of dollars. And then the next day, somebody calls you up, a donor from the other side of the country, and says, hey, I came into some money. I have X amount of dollars that I want to give off of it. Do you guys have a need? And it just so happens that it's the same amount of money. Is that a miracle? Sorry, friends, there's nothing miraculous about that. Uh, you're out mowing the lawn, and somebody's name comes into your mind. And you think to yourself, hey, I haven't talked to that person or seen that person in a long time. I'm going to call them up. So you get done, you go inside, you wash up, and you call up your friend that you haven't been thinking of in a long period of time. And they... They just break down on the other end of the phone and say, man, I'm so glad you called me. My aunt was diagnosed with cancer. My mom died last week, and I just needed an encouraging voice. So you pray with them on the phone and encourage them, and you hang up, and you think, wow, that was awesome. Was that a miracle? That wasn't a miracle either. Man, Jim, you're, you're stealing all my joy, taking away all my miracles. I thought God was at work, and now I'm finding out it wasn't God working at all. Hold on. Let me get to the end of it. Let me give you a couple more illustrations. As a church, we needed a new facility. So we found a piece of land that was a block and a half away for a third of the going price of land at the time. Enough land to build on for the rest of my life. I'll be dead before they ever outgrow, we ever outgrow that six acres. 
Then we had another church who just so happened to be closing down and gave us a half a million dollar facility that we were able to turn around and sell and put that money toward the purchase of a steel building. And we had a consecration Sunday where God moved in a mighty way. If you were here, you remember it. And uh, we $35,000 were given on one Sunday toward the construction of the new building. Were those miracles? None of that was miraculous. Now, say you need $100 for rent. And uh, your landlord is going to be calling tomorrow because you know that. And you need your $100 for rent. So you're, so you're uh, inside. You're getting ready to go to work that morning. And you notice it's chilly outside, especially for that time of the year. It's the middle of summer. And it's kind of cool. So you put on a coat. You haven't worn it in a long time. You reach in your pockets and you pull out a $100 bill. And then you realize that was $100 that my parents gave me for my birthday four months ago. I put it in my pocket. I came home, hung my coat up, forgot all about it. And now I pulled it out right at the right time. Is that a miracle? No. There is nothing miraculous in anything I have just described to you. You know what I have just described to you? Providence. Providence. Nothing miraculous has been described to you. All of it is providence. God working through natural means. God doing, God supernaturally and sovereignly working through natural means to accomplish His plan, to accomplish His purpose. And what we as Christians tend to do is we see things like that which we know are the hand of God and we say, that's a miracle. And it's not a miracle. And I'll tell you why it chaffs me when people do that. It chaffs me because it robs God of glory. You say, how can that be? Let me tell you how it robs God of glory when you confuse miracles with providence. It robs God of glory because when you confuse miracles with providence, you end up diminishing the true miracle. You diminish the true miracle. So you tell your friend, I needed $100 for rent. I pulled, put on my coat. I put my hand in my pocket. And there was $100 that my parents had given me four months ago. I forgot about it. That's a miracle. And your unbelieving friend looks at that. And what does he think and say in his mind? That's what you Christians call miracles? Then you tell me that God does miracles in the Old Testament and God did miracles in the New Testament? And what do they think? They think that miracles are just coincidences or things that can be explained naturally or through natural means. It diminishes a true miracle. Now, I understand what the motivation of Christians is in doing this. Our motivation is to give God glory. Our motivation is to see the hand of God working in these things and then to say, God has done this. And so we say, it's a miracle. Because we want credit to be given where credit is due. And for God to receive glory where God should get glory for His obvious work. And so we see Him work in providing for us and in protecting us and in in being benevolent toward us and giving us grace and guiding us and leading us and directing us and watching over us. And we see these things. And Christians want to give glory to God. So they say it's a miracle, but it's not a miracle. So don't diminish a true miracle by confusing miracles with providence. It robs God of glory because it diminishes the true miracle, but it also robs God of glory because it ignores providence. Friends, do you understand that God is sovereign over all things? Nations putting up kings, taking down kings, car accidents, the traffic light, the milk is spilled on the table this morning. God is in control of all of those things. He works all of those things through His providence, which is Him supernaturally working through all of these things, all of these natural things to accomplish His end. And sometimes we so see the hand of providence that we pray and then money comes in the mail and we say, It just so happened to come at the right time. No, it didn't just so happen. God was working weeks before I got that money at Bible College to put it on the hearts of somebody to take up an offering and then to send that up there. And it took four weeks for it to get up there or whatever it took. But it just so happened to arrive at the very day that I needed it. Is that a miracle? That's not a miracle. That is God working through His providence to answer my prayer before I even prayed it. So rather than us as Christians seeing the hand of providence and seeing God do something, rather than saying it's a miracle... We ought to reserve the term miracle for what a miracle is and instead say, what? That was providential. Because then we are honoring God for doing what God did. When God works an extraordinary thing in an extraordinary way, that's a miracle. God can sometimes work an extraordinary thing in a very ordinary way. That's providence. But listen, friends, God also works ordinary things in ordinary ways. You're going to go home this afternoon you're going to sit down at the table. You're going to pull something out of the fridge. You're going to put it on the stove. You're going to cook it up. You're going to sit down. And you're going to eat it. And if you're a thankful Christian who honors God in everything for food and drink, you're going to bow your head beforehand and you're going to thank God for that food. Why do you do that? Do you do that because somebody walked in and multiplied bread and fish and put it on the table for you and then walked out? Are you thanking God for a miracle? No. You know what? You're, you know what happened? 
You went to work, you got a paycheck, you went down to the store, you picked up the food, you took it home, you preserved it in the fridge for this day, you took it out, you put it on the table, and you get to eat of it. Is it a miracle or is it a providence? God provided for you, not through a miracle, but a very ordinary thing in a very ordinary way. That is the hand of providence. And we need to give God glory for providence and not confuse providence with miracles. Now, that simple definition, that simple description just answered a whole bunch of questions on that list. You'll see how next week. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. There are three periods of miracles. There are three periods in, in history in which God did miracles. Now, this may be a shock to you or a surprise, but, but listen up. If you were to put, if I were to put a timeline up on the wall here from creation all the way through to the present day, and you were to look at that timeline, and then we were to begin in Genesis, and we were to begin to put all of the miracles up on that timeline, you would find that the majority, the vast majority of the miracles that occurred in the Bible occurred during three brief periods of history. Each period of history lasted no more than a hundred years. Uh, most of them, all three of them, actually lasted closer to 60 years each. The first period in which God did miracles was during the time of Moses and Joshua from 1450 to 1390. Now remember, it's B.C., so you've got to have backwards count. That's what B.C. stands for, backwards count. 1450 to 1390, about 60 years during the lives of Moses and Joshua. The second major period in which God did miracles was during the lives and the ministry of Elijah and Elisha from 860 to 800 B.C. Then you have a relatively calm period of time, relatively peaceful period of time, and then you have another explosion of miracles during the lives of Jesus and the apostles from 30 A.D. to 60 A.D. So if you were to put the miracles up on a timeline and, and sort of slot them in, you would see an explosion of miracles during Moses and Joshua, a relative period of quiet, an explosion of miracles during the prophets Elijah and Elisha, then a relative period of quiet, and then an explosion of miracles during the lives of Jesus and the apostles. Now, not all miracles can be, can be conveniently put into each of those three groupings, but the majority, the vast majority, can be. There are miracles that occur outside of those time periods, like um, Hezekiah's healing during the time of Isaiah, the, the sundial going back in 2 Kings chapter 20, Daniel in the lion's den. The, the way that God characteristically dealt with His people between those periods of time was not characterized by miracles. Miracles characterized these brief periods of time during Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. There are a sprinkling, a few occasional, supernatural, miraculous events outside of that, but the vast majority are in those three periods of time. That's the first sort of general observation. Let me give you a second general observation about miracles. Listen up. This is significant. Each one of those periods of times, each one of those explosions of miracles initiated or came at the beginning of a new period of divine revelation. You have Moses and Joshua coming on the scene. Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua wrote the book that bears his name, the book of Joshua. And after that, you have the historical books being written, the Psalms and the Proverbs. And then you have this relative period of quiet. Then you have Elijah and Elisha coming on the scene. And Elijah and Elisha instituted basically the office of prophet and sort of inaugurated the prophetic era of the Old Testament. And then after their ministry, you had Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, those books being written, and then you had all of the prophets being written after that. So you have, and Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, what was written during and after their life? New Testament. So you have three brief periods of miracles in the Bible. Each explosion of miracles initiated a giving of divine revelation. And revelation followed those explosions of miracles in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The book of Acts chapter 2 is where you need to be. Now all of that was introduction. Now we get to get to the meat of the exposition. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to go through the book of Acts. Now, we've looked at all of the miracles. We're not going to look at every miracle. Okay? We've already done that. We've spent a lot of time in some of those miracles and the ramifications of them. What I want to do is I want to go to the places in the book of Acts where miracles are talked about, where they are described, and where we are given inspired commentary on the purpose and the point of miracles. Acts chapter 2. Hold on a second because i got to turn there too. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Now, this is the Apostle Peter's inspired commentary on the purpose of miracles in the life of Jesus. This is his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man, look at this, 
attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Peter is talking to the people who had heard about the miracles of Jesus. Some of those people had seen the miracles of Jesus. Some of those people in that large crowd possibly had even benefited from the miracles of Jesus. And they're standing on the day of Pentecost and Peter says, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was what? Attested to you by God through signs, wonders, and miracles which God performed through him in your midst. What is the purpose of miracles in the life of Jesus? It was to attest to Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I do in my Father's name. You should look at what I'm doing and understand that they testify of me that I am who I claim to be. They attested to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. In John chapter 10, the Jews came up to us and said, stop keeping us in suspense. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. (laughs) Nine chapters he'd been telling them plainly. They didn't get it. They said, stop keeping us in suspense. And if you're the Messiah, tell us. And what did Jesus say? I told you, but you don't believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me, and you ought to believe because of the works, because the works demonstrate that I am who I am, that I am who I claim to be. They attested to who Jesus was. How do you know a true Messiah from a false Messiah? true Messiah comes onto the scene in human history and he performs signs and wonders like nobody's ever seen before. That's what is unique about that third period of miracles in the Bible. It's unlike the first two. The ministry of Jesus and the apostles was unlike anything the world had seen. The period of Moses and his miracles and the period of Elijah and Elisha and their miracles, they paled in comparison to Jesus. When Jesus came onto the scene, sometimes the Gospel writers would just say, He healed the multitudes. We can't even tell you all the stories. He just healed the multitudes. They were coming in thousands and He healed them. He virtually banished disease from Palestine. He overran the demons and overwhelmed them on a daily basis. Raised the dead, changed water into wine, walked on water. All of these things. So what He did and what the apostles did just exploded onto the scene in scope and in frequency. Nothing like it before that and nothing like it since. For the purpose of attesting that Jesus was who He was. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Let's make another observation. Now, as we go through this, beginning with this verse, you're going to notice two things. You're going to notice a pattern, and you're going to notice some rare exceptions. And I'll make note of the exceptions in a second. But I want you to notice the pattern. And even, (laughs) this is interesting, even the exceptions bear witness to the pattern. They actually enforce the pattern. And here we go. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place. Period. What does it say? Many wonders and signs were taking place through whom? Through the apostles. Through the apostles. Luke doesn't say, hey, miracles were happening all over the place. And just leave it at that. Luke is careful to tell us, hey, miracles were taking place, but it was through the apostles. Turn over to Acts chapter 4, verse 29 and verse 30. This is after Peter and John have been arrested, put in the uh, threatened by the Sanhedrin, and then released. They go back to their companions. They have a prayer meeting. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord... Now, this is the apostles praying. This is the apostles praying. And now, Lord... Take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, this is in the context. Who's praying? Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, they're gathered with other people in the church, but this is their prayer. They're praying that God would grant them boldness and confidence in proclaiming the Word, and that God would grant that signs and wonders be done through them. So it's again through the apostles. But I want you to notice a second observation. This is part of the pattern. What is the What are the signs and wonders attached to in the previous verse and in the following verse? Do you notice it? It is the proclamation and preaching of the Word. Grant that we may have boldness and confidence to proclaim your word. And the signs and wonders happened, and God answered that prayer, and what did they do? They went out and with boldness began preaching the word. The signs and wonders are connected to the apostolic preaching of the word. So it was the apostles, and then Luke connects the signs and wonders to the apostolic preaching of the word, the message that they were given. Turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Once again, Luke doesn't just say miracles were happening and move on. He specifically tells us it was through the hands 
of the apostles that these signs and wonders were taking place. Now, that's the pattern. The apostles did the miracles. The apostles did the miracles in connection with the Word, the message, and the revelation that they preached. That's the pattern. Now, there are three exceptions. And we're going to look at all three of them right in a row because they come next. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Look at verse 7. The Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So who's the first exception to perform signs? Stephen. Now, Stephen wasn't an apostle. He wasn't an apostle, not like Paul, not like John. So just keep that in the back of your mind. But what I want you to notice is the connection to the Word of God being preached again. Stephen was a deacon. He was one that the apostles had chosen from amongst all of the Christians in Jerusalem. They laid hands on them, commissioned them into this ministry. And even though he was a deacon, he had a preaching and teaching ministry as well. And he was performing signs. Because in verse 7 it says the Word of God is spreading quickly. Verse 8 is Stephen performing miracles. Verses 9 and 10 has to do with Stephen's preaching and teaching ministry. The second exception is in Acts chapter 8, verse 6. Beginning in verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Notice the preaching the Word again. This is the pattern. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Who was performing the signs? Philip. Is Philip an apostle? Philip's not an apostle. Neither is Stephen. Stephen is the first exception. Philip is the second exception. There is a third exception. But before you leave this text, I want you to notice the connection to what? The Word. It was the Word that was being preached. And they were heeding what was spoken by Philip in his preaching and proclaiming Christ because they saw the signs that he was doing. Acts chapter 14, verse 3 is the third exception. This is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in the city of Iconium. Verse 3 says, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was, look at this, this is beautiful, testifying to the word of His grace by granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Who's the they? Paul and whom? Barnabas. So Barnabas is the third exception. Now Barnabas wasn't an apostle. Not in the sense of the 12 plus Paul type of apostle, the 13. He wasn't an apostle like that. He was a sent one. But he wasn't an apostle like Peter and John and Paul. Neither was Stephen. Neither was Philip. So Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas are all exceptions to the pattern. What is the pattern? The pattern is that signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostle. And then Luke tells us about three significant exceptions to that rule. There was Stephen, who's dead. There was Philip, who after his ministry in Samaria, we never read of him performing another sign. And then there was Barnabas, who performed signs. And Barnabas traveled with whom? Paul. And Paul was a what? An apostle. Now see, friends, all three of the exceptions prove the rule because of this. Listen. All three of those people, Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas, were all so closely associated with apostolic ministry and apostolic preaching in the early church that it, it was almost like they were one with the apostles. The apostles had laid hands on him. Philip's ministry and Stephen's ministry was so connected to that of Peter and John in Jerusalem that you cannot divide them. And Paul, of course, is connected with Barnabas. And Barnabas did miracles with Paul. We never read of Barnabas performing any miracles. And I have no reason to think that after Paul and Barnabas split ways, that Barnabas went off on his own missionary journey and continued doing the miracles. I have no reason to think that that's true. No record of that. Why? Because the pattern is that the miracles were performed by whom? Apostles. Look over at Acts chapter 15, verse 12. We're making better time than you probably thought we were going to. Acts chapter 15, verse 12. Now, I need to set this one up to you because, listen, this is one of the most significant ones in all of the ones that I'm reading to you. As if what we've read so far is not enough to prove the case. Let me set up this because if we had no other verse in the book of Acts that spoke of signs and wonders, this would be enough to establish my position on miracles and what I'm trying to teach you. In Acts chapter 15, the issue is circumcision. Paul and Barnabas had returned back from their first missionary journey. They got back to Antioch and they're ministering in the church there. And word comes that Judaizers had come into the city of, in the regions of Galatia and began to preaching that unless a man is circumcised, he cannot be saved. So that you have to circumcise Gentile converts to Christianity. And if a Gentile convert is not circumcised after coming to faith in Christ, 
he cannot experience salvation. Well, this becomes a very heated issue in the early church. And so the apostles decide we're going to call a council in Jerusalem. So the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, go back to Jerusalem after Paul had written the book of Galatians. They go back to the city of Jerusalem. The elders of the church are there. James, the Lord's brother, is there. He's an elder in the church by this time. And here is the issue. Can Gentiles be saved apart from circumcision? That's the issue. What is the requirements of the Old Testament law for Gentile converts to our Jewish Messiah? What do we impose upon Gentiles? And at the heart of the whole issue is this question. Is the gospel that Paul preaches from God, is it divine truth? Is it authoritative? Is it trustworthy? Or is Paul preaching error? That's the question. That's at the heart of it. Because if you walked up and you asked Paul, does a Gentile convert need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Paul would have said emphatically, no, may it never be. Not at all. And he never imposed that upon his converts. So here's the question of the Jerusalem Council. Is Paul's answer to that question, is his gospel, is what he's teaching and preaching, true or false? That's the question. Well, Peter gets up and he gives his testimony. I think that's beginning in verse, uh, verse 8 and verse 9. Peter stands up and he says, look, here's, here's his basic testimony. God called me to go to Cornelius. I went to Cornelius' house. Cornelius got saved and they filled with the Spirit of God before I even had a chance to circumcise him. Or baptism. Therefore, Gentiles can be justified apart from the works of the law and apart from circumcision. And we ought not to make Gentiles bear a burden that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. So leave the Gentiles alone. And then Paul and Barnabas get up in verse 12. And all the people kept silent, it says, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were, what? Teaching from the Old Testament. Nope. What were they doing? Relating to the people the signs and the wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And you catch the significance of that verse? Here's the question. Is Paul's Gospel the real Gospel or is it another Gospel? Is what Paul preached, is what Paul is preaching, is it true or is it false? And Paul stands up in the Jerusalem Council and this is his argument. If what I am preaching is error, God would not authenticate my error by granting that signs and wonders be done by my hands among the Gentiles. Do you want to know if what I'm telling them is true? Do you want to know if the gospel that I preach is true? God has authenticated my gospel. God has authenticated my ministry. God has testified to the word of His grace by granting the signs and wonders be done through my hands. And God does not authenticate error. So if my gospel were wrong, I wouldn't be able to do the signs. That's his argument. And then James gets up and he gives his argument. And then they, of course, resolve it by saying we're not going to require anything of the Gentiles except that they live in peace with the Jews. You see Acts chapter 15, verse 12, how significant that is? Paul's saying if what I'm teaching is not true, God would not put his stamp of authenticity on it by granting me the ability to put signs and wonders. Turn over to Acts chapter 19. This is our last one in the book of Acts. And by the way, I, I want you to also notice the pattern in, in chapter 14, verse 3, and chapter 15, verse 12, that it was connected to the message. It was connected to the apostolic preaching. Acts chapter 14, verse 3, it was testifying to the word of His grace. Acts chapter 15, verse 12, the connection between signs and wonders had to do with the message that Paul preached. Acts chapter 19, Paul's in Ephesus, and he's teaching at the school of Tyrannus. And he's teaching there for two years. Verse, um, I need to get in Acts chapter 19. Verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Don't miss the connection. Verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And Paul was a apostle. See the pattern? We've established the pattern. They say, did only the apostles do signs and wonders? No, I've never said that. Not only the apostles did signs and wonders. The apostles did signs and wonders, and there were three exceptions, who, by the way, were very closely related to the apostles' ministry, the apostles themselves, and apostolic preaching. And the signs and wonders are in the book of Acts, always connected to the preaching of the apostolic message. It was the apostles who performed the signs and wonders. It was connected to the growth and advancement of the Word of God through the apostolic ministry and through the apostolic preaching. So much so that verse 20 says, So the Word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, if you read through the book of Acts and you read all of the miracles that Peter did and John did and Paul, Stephen, Barnabas, and Philip, and you get to the end of the book of Acts and you think, man, the early church was a miracle-working church. If you would come to that conclusion, you would be wrong. 
The early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church was a church that had miracle-working apostles. Do you understand the difference between those two things? The early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church was a church that had miracle-working apostles who God bore witness to their testimony, to their message, by granting that they had the ability to perform signs and wonders. That is the pattern. That is what we have seen all the way through the book of Acts. Luke is always careful to tell us this was done by the hands of the apostles and even those rare individuals who for a brief period could do them, other than the apostles, connected to the apostles and to apostolic ministry. Two more passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. I want you to turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. If you've been here for a while, then you know that turning a page in your Bible is not custom fare around here. We usually don't do that. Usually we open it up and it stays there until we're done with the passage. And unless your Bible happens to run over onto the next page, you don't turn your pages here. So I hope you're bearing with me as we go quickly through all these passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Let me briefly set the context for you here. Beginning in chapter 10, Paul's defending himself against people in Corinth who were questioning his apostolic credentials and his apostolic authority. And they were saying he's not a true apostle, he's a false apostle, he never traveled with Jesus, he's a self-appointed apostle, he does tricks, he does all of these things to try and deceive you, he's not the genuine article, don't listen to him, don't trust him, he's a horrible person, he's taking your money, and they were saying all of this stuff about Paul. So in chapter 10, beginning actually the whole epistle is him defending himself, but chapter 10 begins with him defending his apostolic credentials. Paul says, how, do you, how are you going to know if I'm a true apostle? Let me pull out my apostle card. I got my apostle card here. See, sealed and certified. It's got my little picture. It's laminated, and I clip it here when I go to the churches. What are the apostolic credentials? What are the signs of an apostle? How would I distinguish a true apostle from a false apostle? How do I know if Paul disagrees with this guy that Paul is right and not this guy? Or how do I know that this guy is right and not Paul? How can I differentiate between the true and the false? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed in your midst with all perseverance, with signs and wonders and miracles. How do you know a true apostle from a false apostle? Paul says, you want to see my apostolic credentials? I did signs in your midst. And the signs bear witness that I am a true apostle. Now, in the New Testament, if everybody did miracles, what does that verse mean? If everybody was performing miracles, what does chapter 12, verse 12 mean? It means nothing. It's nonsense. If everybody, the apostles and all the religious leaders, could perform miracle signs and wonders, what does chapter 12, verse 12 mean? It's nonsensical. Paul says, here's how you tell a true apostle from a false apostle. A true apostle can perform true signs and wonders, and I did this in your midst. So God has given authentication to me and to my ministry, to my message and to my authority, because... False apostles cannot perform true signs. So what are the apostolic credentials? Signs. And if anybody can do signs, if anybody can do miracles, if anybody can perform wonders in the New Testament church, then how can you differentiate between a true apostle and a false apostle? What basis would you use? That's Paul's point. Only true apostles do true signs. Paul says, I'm a true apostle because I did true signs. Hebrews chapter 2 is the next and last passage that I want you to turn to. Hebrews chapter 2. This is not written by an apostle. The book of Hebrews is not. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. How shall we neglect if we, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who were those who heard what was spoken by the Lord? Another way of saying apostles. This great salvation was first spoken by the Lord. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. Look at verse 4. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The author says our salvation is great and cannot be neglected. And if we dare to neglect our salvation, how can you possibly hope to escape? Well, this salvation which is so great, which we cannot escape a judgment if we neglect it, is great and we are held accountable because this salvation was first given by Christ and then through those who heard Him, they testified to us, which they do today. Dead men still speak in the pages of Scripture. They testify to us, and the author of the Hebrews said, God testified with them 
by granting that they perform signs and wonders. You see this pattern? Who performed signs and wonders? It was the apostles. What was their signs and wonders connected to? The revelation that they were given, the message that they were preached, to authenticate them as genuine messengers of God who bore the truth and were communicating to us the truth about a salvation. And the argument of the author of Hebrews is, listen to them. They did signs and you will not be held guiltless if you neglect their message. That's his point. How do we know that the salvation is great? How do we know that it's a true message? Because God gave them the stamp of authenticity, the ability to perform signs. So do I believe that miracles happen today? You say, man, I'm not sure what you believe. You're kind of off the, I'm not sure if you're off the deep end or the shallow end of the pool or if you're even in the pool. I'm not sure where you're at. Do I believe that miracles happen today? I most certainly do. But I do not believe that God works through miracle workers today. Do I believe in the miraculous? Oh yeah, I believe in the miraculous. But I don't believe that God works through miracle workers today. I believe that much of what we see is simply God's providence at work. And we ought to give Him glory for that. And when God does something that is extraordinary that can't be explained by natural means, it doesn't fit within our normal experience, we ought to give Him glory for that too. I believe that God does do miracles, but I don't believe that He does it through miracle workers. There's no message to be given. It's been once for all delivered to the saints. It's been once for all authenticated. Who did the miracles? Apostles did the miracles. What was the purpose? To authenticate the Word, to authenticate the message, to authenticate the revelation. The Word, the message, the revelation has been authenticated. The purpose for miracles done through a miracle worker has been fulfilled. Now, this at the risk of being too pedantic or too simple or oversimplifying it, let me ask you this. Who did the miracles? Apostles. Are apostles still alive? No, they're not. What was the purpose? To authenticate the Word. Has the Word been authenticated? certainly has. So what might we expect to see of miracle workers today? If what I'm saying is true, that God performed miracles through the apostles to authenticate revelation, then let me offer to you a prediction. This is what we'd expect when we read our New Testament. We would expect to see at the beginning of our New Testament, the beginning of the church, an explosion of miracles. Unprecedented. You would expect to turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and see miracles happening all over the place as they exploded on the scene. But then we would be able to predict and expect a second thing. We would expect that as the apostolic age wore on, that miracles would begin to diminish. As their credentials had been established, we would expect that their ability and the frequency and the scope of miracles would start to slow down and cool off. And then we would expect that within the lifetime of the apostles, and certainly with their death, that miracles of that scope and frequency would cease altogether. So now I ask you, as you read your New Testament, what do you see? You open up the book of Acts and you begin reading in chapter 1 and you see miracle after miracle after miracle. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and then nothing until chapter 14 and 15 and then 19 and then 28. What do you see in the book of Acts? You see a slowing down of the miraculous from the beginning to the end as the apostolic age wore on. And we even have evidence in some of the later epistles that miracles had ceased even within the lifetime of the Apostle Paul. You say, what kind of evidence? Well, all the later epistles. Take the book of Philippians written in 60 A.D. Paul says that Epaphroditus was sick almost to death. But God had mercy on me and He healed him. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? God spared Epaphroditus' life. He was sick almost to death and you needed him. Why didn't you heal him? Paul doesn't say anything about healing Epaphroditus. just that God spared him. God spared him and allowed him to live. Paul didn't perform a miracle. Second Corinthians, thorn in the flesh. Why didn't Paul heal himself? Because he lacked the ability. First Timothy, chapter 5, written between 62 and 63 A.D. Timothy is needing um, some counsel from the Apostle Paul. He's got stomach problems and drinking the water in that area at that time. Is, man, that's, poof, it hurt me. And so Paul writes, and Paul doesn't send him a handkerchief. Here, wipe the sweat off my brow. Send you a handkerchief. This worked in Ephesus. Put this on your head tonight when you go to sleep. And tomorrow morning you wake up. Any demons you have will be gone and you'll be healed of all your illnesses. Paul didn't do that. What did he do? Gives him a medical prescription. Maybe he consulted Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke, what do we tell Timothy? Tell him to put a little wine in his water for his stomach's sake. Drink a little wine. That's good for him. He's trying to abstain entirely. Just a sip of wine every night with dinner will help settle his stomach down. Paul doesn't offer to heal Timothy. He doesn't give him any apostolic healing. Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Trophimus, 
I left sick at Miletus. I left Trospas sick at Miletus. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? This is the end of the apostolic era. And Paul's talking like the, the gift of miracles, this ability to heal people has been gone. It's been taken from him. It's no longer operative. Why? Because even in the lifetime of the apostles, toward the end of the apostolic era, the purpose of miracles had been fulfilled. Paul says, Paphroditus was sick. Trophimus was sick. And I left him there. I mean, Lord be with you, brother. i got to go. And he takes off rather than healing Trophimus, whom he left sick. Second Peter, First Peter. Both written between 60 and 65 A.D. No mention of miracles. None of the last three epistles that Paul wrote, Titus, 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, mention anything about supernatural gifts, miracles of healing. And as Paul is passing the pastoral mantle, not the apostolic mantle, the pastoral mantle on to Timothy and to Titus, he doesn't mention anything about miracles, what to expect, how to perform them, what he should be doing, none of that. None of the later epistles that Paul writes mention anything about it. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all, writ, all written late. No mention of apostolic sign gifts. No mention of people being healed and miracles happening. The book of Revelation, the set, letters to the seven churches, written around 95 A.D. at the latest. No mention of miracles and sign gifts taking place in the churches of that day. What are we to make of that? Well, once we begin to understand the, who did the miracles, why they did the miracles, and why God granted miracles to take place through their hands, all of a sudden, the questions that I raised at the beginning, they're starting to crystal clear, aren't they? It's, it's like something solid starting to sort of take shape out of the fog, and you're beginning to see we can now apply these principles and these things to some of the questions that we had asked. Next week. That, that's all, by the way. I, I mean, I'm out. I'm out, of, I'm out of words. I'm out of breath. You're out of patience. We're out of time. This is longer than it's normally been. Um, let me sum this up. There was a purpose for miracles in the New Testament. And there were people who did miracles in the New Testament. Who were they? The apostles. Only apostles? No, there were some rare exceptions. Luke tells us about those. They were connected to the apostles. What was the purpose of miracles in the New Testament? To authenticate the messenger. Now, those people have passed, and the purpose has been fulfilled. Some of you are going to walk away from here, and you're going to want to say, Pastor Jim doesn't believe in miracles. He put God in a box. I love that one. Put God in a box. As if I can box God up in any way. I love that accusation. Do I believe in miracles? Listen, friends, let me, let me close with this. I'm a Calvinist. Remember, I have the audacity to believe that God actually sovereignly rules His creation and can do anything He wants at any time. Of course I believe in miracles. My own salvation was something that cannot be explained in natural means. So do I believe God does miracles? I believe every miracle that is written in this book happened exactly as it was written. Exactly as it was written. And I believe that the same God can and does do miracles today. But He does not do it through a human agent for the purpose of authenticating a ministry or a revelation. That has already been done. Now when God does something miraculous... He gets all the glory and everything points to Him and He does it according to His sovereign will because He is in the heavens and He does according to His will on earth and among the inhabitants of the earth. Do I believe in miracles? I certainly do. Next week, we will come back. You have to wait another seven days, but this will all start to crystallize in your mind. You have your questions. Start to try and put together some of the answers. And next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll take the, the structure that I have created for you this morning and we will begin to apply that thinking to all of those difficult questions and hopefully a few more. So let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to You that You are a God of, of glory and God of wonders, a God of signs and a God of miracles. You make Your works known from generation to generation. You do according to Your will amongst us. We thank You that You are a miracle-working God, that we can trust You and that we can ask You for things which are beyond our ability to, to even think about or to even ask for because we know that there is nothing that limits your power or your arm. And we ask that you would give us a fresh glimpse of just who you are, just what you've done, and why you have done it, that we might worship you and glorify you aright. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.